All right. Uh, thanks for coming this morning. Uh, we'll hop right into our Sunday school lesson, but first uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning to gather as your people uh, to just, again, stop, quiet our hearts, uh, reflect on what it is that you might have for us today, help us to be attentive, uh, but more importantly, Lord, to let this rich word that you have preserved for us to take root in our hearts, uh, that we might be changed by it, even as we consider uh, what really is just historical narrative from the Old Testament. Uh, thank you for Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we begin this morning, I want you to think with me for just a moment about the events that take place after the death of a monarch. Think like a king or a queen. You know, what, what goes on? I mean, we're actually kind of living that right now, aren't we? Uh, queen Elizabeth II just passed away a, a month or so ago now, and there's a lot of hoopla surrounding the events that take place afterwards. I think there was like... Uh, a 10-day period of mourning that was declared. I know England stopped like all activities. There were like events that were canceled, even soccer matches, and that's a huge deal for them. So they were taking this pretty seriously to cancel soccer even. But eventually, all that kind of dies down and people start to look forward and ask the question, who's next? Right, like who takes the place after the queen passes away. Well, for England, it's pretty straightforward. They've got like this family tree, line of succession type thing that you can Google and like see all the rankings and who would be next after now King Charles passes away. In America, very much the same thing. After the president and vice president are incapacitated, we have a pretty clear line of who would be the next in command after that. But if there's no clear line of succession, things can get pretty messy. Uh, what ends up happening is that the people who have the most power or influence often vie for power or control at the expense of people's lives even. Uh, we, we've seen this happen in history with mixed results. Maybe the best example is uh, Alexander the Great and, and what happened after his passing. So if you remember, Alexander the Great had amassed maybe the one of the largest empires in the ancient world, stretching from Greece uh, in the west all the way over to like India in the east, this huge, huge, huge empire. And he passed away unexpectedly. And for like the next week, it was just chaos because Alexander had not mentioned who it was that was going to replace him. I, I, I even read a source that said something like his body lay undisturbed or unburied for seven days while his army like sorted out who it was that was going to take over for him. Uh, it was just crazy. And, and what ended up happening was his four like generals, if you will, ended up taking a quarter of the empire. They divided it amongst themselves. And as you can imagine, that wasn't quite as effective as what Alexander had accomplished. In fact, it was pretty ineffective. These guys, instead of continuing his vision, advancing this empire, they fought amongst themselves. And they eventually weakened what was once this great empire, so much so that Rome was able to come through and just wipe them out and overthrew them. So we see that having a successor is pretty important, and when you don't name one, it's a little bit of chaos, and that is kind of the situation that we find ourselves in here in 2 Samuel. So turn to 2 Samuel, if you will. Second Samuel chapter 2. 
If you remember the events of last week, chapter 1, Saul has just died. And David responds with a lament. He rips his clothes. He's mourning for him. But the question remains, who's going to be king after Saul? From our perspective, the answer is pretty obvious, right? I mean, we know David was anointed by Samuel, but we're wondering, are the people of Israel going to affirm Samuel's choice? Well, the answer might actually surprise you. Let's read the first seven verses of 2 Samuel chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Just a couple of points of observations from these first seven verses. David, upon receiving the news that Saul is dead, doesn't go kicking doors down and saying, I'm king, I'm here, anoint me, you know, I'm the guy, right? Like, <laughs> he doesn't do that. He, he mourns, he weeps, and then the text says, Verse 1, he inquires of the Lord. Although he knows full well he's been anointed by Samuel to be king, he still pauses and says, Lord, what's the next step here? What do you have for me? If you were to look back into 1 Samuel, we'll see David inquire of the Lord a handful of times. It's something that he's made a practice of. Lord, do you want me to go after the Philistines? Lord, do you want me to chase down this band that has hauled off our wives and like overtake them? Lord, what is the next step after Saul's death? And I think that that should be cause for reflection for us. Do we inquire of God when there are decisions that we have to make? Even ones that might be obvious, maybe we could reword this just a little bit and ask, do we pray when confronted with decisions? Are we humble enough to come before God and say, hey, I've got these different options in front of me. What would you have me to do? Uh, I, I trust you, Lord. I depend on you. I need your wisdom, your insight in this matter. Can you direct my paths? It, uh, you know, honestly, it seems kind of proud to not pray in these situations, to in essence tell God, I got it. I'll go make myself king. I know what's next. No, David is a man who prays. Even when the answer seems obvious to him, he goes to God, what should I do? What's next here? And he asks a question that maybe seems a little random at first. He says, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? 
why didn't he ask, shall I go to Dan or Nebulon or Zaphtali or, you know, like any of these other uh, uh, tribes. But remember, David is from Judah. So perhaps there was that like family connection to this tribe. And, and specifically, he asks about Hebron. Hebron is significant in that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all buried there. Kind of a historical site for Jews. And that's where he ends up. And the most important things that, that happens in Hebron in this chapter is that David is crowned king. But there's an asterisk to his coronation. Verse 4, he was anointed king over the house of Judah, only Judah. He's not king of all of Israel yet. He's just king of Judah. But the impact of his kingship is felt pretty early on. Uh, He's told in verses 4 and following about these men from Jabesh Gilead who took Saul's body and his son's bodies and gave them a proper burial. And David deeply respects the loyalty that they've shown to Saul and his family here, promises to do good to them. Uh, We have kind of this inside look into the type of leader that David is. He promotes goodness. He encourages when people do right actions and behavior. He's a very good king in that regard. And at the end of all of his little spiel to them, he tacks on this little phrase right there at the end of verse 7, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And it's almost like he's putting it out there for these guys. You know, Jabesh Gilead isn't in the tribe of Judah. And he's saying, oh, hey, guys, by the way, uh, Judah's made me king over here. Almost like leaving it open-ended, like, you guys going to follow suit? Like, (laughs) come on, get in line here. And maybe that is the direction things would have gone had it not been for verse 8 and one little word, but. Look at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commanded Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, from my perspective, what we just read here is kind of deflating. Like here's David, who's literally had to wait through a good chunk of Saul's reign, it seems like, to be king. And now, like, Saul's finally dead, and we think he's the next guy up. And Abner's like, nope, I got my own plan. I'm going to take Ishbosheth, and I'm going to make him king over every tribe not named Judah. So we have these two kings and two kingdoms now, when in our minds it should be just David that is ruling. Now, we've come across Abner before. He shows up in 1 Samuel. He is the commander of Saul's army, and also he is Saul's cousin. So there's this family relationship. David actually roasts him a little bit back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, Abner was supposed to be, like, guarding Saul when when David comes over and, like, cuts the edge off of his garment. And then they're kind of standing across this canyon from each other. And David's like, Abner, like, man up. Stay awake. Protect your king. What are you doing, man? Like, you should have been awake protecting Saul, and you let me come right over, cut off his garment, take his, you know, whatever. Man up. So he roasts him a little bit, and now here Abner is making his own king over the tribes of Israel. 
Abner sees, hey, there's another son of Saul who's not dead. I'm going to make him king. From our perspective, it seems like, huh, the air's been out, let out a little bit. Do you notice the time in verse 11 that David was king over just Judah? Seven and a half years. Now for us, it's just a sentence on a page, right? We can read seven and a half years and it means nothing to us in history. But like, imagine, David, I should be king over a united Israel and for seven and a half years... He's just king over Judah. His patience here is astonishing to me. Right? I very much possess this, I want it now mentality. Like, I cannot wait for anything. And here David is. God does things differently than we would like, that I'm sure David would want. And he's just patient. And he trusts God's timing. He trusts God's plan. There's something to be said about that. A a person who isn't just pushing, 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 pushing. Give me what I want. Give me what you promised me. But you know what? God's in control. I'm not going to force the issue here, even if that means that I'm king of just Judah for seven and a half years. I was very impressed by David's behavior there. But now there's a divided kingdom. And unfortunately, we begin to see some hostility between the tribes here. Look at verse 12. So Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon, and the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And what we have going on here seems a little bit strange to us. It almost seems like a contest of champions. You have 12 from Ishbosheth's camp line up against 12 from David's camp, and they fight each other. And the text says that they actually both kind of simultaneously kill themselves. And this just escalates into an all out war. What was 12 on 12 is now by the end of this just a fierce battle. And we're told that David's army is led by none other than Joab as he's introduced, Joab, the son of Zariah. Now, does anyone remember who Zariah is? I'll be incredibly impressed if you guys do. Zariah is David's sister, which makes Joab what relation to David? Nephew. Yeah. So, I hope you can see how, like, the family lines are shaping up even here in the text. On one hand, in Israel... You have Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and Abner, Saul's cousin. They're kind of in charge over here. In Judah, you have David and Joab, his nephew. So like there's like really strong family ties between the tribes at this moment. And it's just sad to be honest that what already should be one big family in the 12 tribes of Judah is being subdivided even further into families and there's just this civil war that is taking place. 
And right in the midst of this civil war, the author zooms in on one event in particular, which is not random. Look at verse 18. And the three sons of Zeriah were there with Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and he went. He turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was, and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Now we have a potential problem on our hands, don't we? Right, Abner has just killed the brother of who? Joab. Joab, the commander of David's army. So this is now not just, oh, the normal like things of war. This is personal. The commander of Israel's army has killed the brother of the commander of Judah's army. And, and this wasn't like cold-blooded murder, right? We actually observed in the text here that Abner gives Asahel a couple of warnings, right? Twice he says, stop following me, turn back, I don't want to hurt you. Like, seriously, stop following me. I, I do not want to face your brother Joab. And yet Asahel continues to pursue him. He's just going hard after him. Eventually Abner and what, from my perspective, doesn't even seem to be, like, violent. He uses the butt of his spear, not the point of his spear, to just stop him. And maybe in, like, some freak-type accident, it actually just impales him. And he's killed. And I really want us to, like, notice the author is drawing this to our attention for a reason. This is going to be significant later. This is personal now between Joab and Abner. Joab's brother has just been killed by this other guy. A little intense, a little problematic. Verse 24 and following records kind of the end of this battle. Joab and Abishai pursue Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner in one group, and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have given up the pursuit, would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came 
to Mahanaim, Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel, and before the servants of David, excuse me, but the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men, and they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Really quickly, in summary, we just read the winding down of this battle. Abner kind of takes a final stand on this hill and says, listen, should, should brothers really be fighting amongst themselves like this? This is civil war we got going on. Israel as a whole is just losing by continuing this battle. Let's call it off. Joab agrees, and they return home, and there is revealed to us just this huge disparity in the loss of people. I mean, David's servants only lost 19 compared to Abner, 360. And we hope that's the end of it. Like, please, no more civil war. But chapter 3 reveals, man, this is just the beginning. Look at verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. We get a description of David's sons in verses 2 to 5. But really things begin to pick up again. In verse 6, where we read, While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Really quick, what we have happening here is Ishbosheth accusing Abner of misconduct with one of Saul's concubines. And Abner just takes that like really personally. He calls himself a dog's head. Are you treating me like this? Really, Ishbosheth? I have been nothing but kind to you. I have made you king over Israel. I have furthered your causes. I have fought on your side. And you are going to accuse me of this severe misconduct? He says, I'm gone. I'm out of here. You know what? He jumps ship entirely and he goes over to David's camp. So if you're, I wish I had a chart. I wish I would have done this because I realize all these relations are getting a little like, okay, what's happening here? You have Saul's family and David's family. And Abner, Saul's cousin, jumps ship from his own relations and says, you know what? I'm helping David. Could be a little awkward because Abner did kill, over here, Joab's brother. We're going to see why that gets awkward in a minute. But Abner's like, you insult me, I'm gone. I'm going to go help David. Interestingly enough, I love how Abner knows that God had promised the throne to David from the beginning. So it makes me wonder why he had helped Ishbosheth if he already knew the outcome. Uh, verse 9, he says, I'm going to accomplish what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and Judah. He mentions Dan and Beersheba. Basically, I'm giving David the whole of the kingdom, top to bottom. I'm his ally now. See you later. We read... Abner then begins to rally the troops, so to speak. 
Look at verse 12. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Behurim. Then Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. Just stop here for just a second. So Abner sends this communication off to David and says, Hey, I'm your guy now. Let's start making an alliance. And David says, Okay. I'll make an alliance with you, Abner. That's, that works out pretty well for me. On one condition, before you come, bring Michael, my wife, with you. Now, if you remember, Michael is Saul's daughter. So one commentator speculated that perhaps this was a pretty shrewd, like diplomatic decision on the part of David for him to bring Michael uh, back into his household, so to speak. Just reminding the people, I do have a rightful claim to the throne through marriage. I am connected to Saul. I do... Uh, really <laughs> have a rightful claim to the nation, the whole nation of Israel. I, I couldn't help but laugh at uh, Michael's now new husband, who like he's just crying the whole way as his wife is being brought to David, and Abner's like, hey, get out of here, go, go back home. Like, she's going back to her first husband, so <laughs> get lost, so to speak. And uh, so that, that happens there. Verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So we see Abner like conferring with the elders of Israel. He's talking to Benjamin. He is just like on a mission. He is making sure everyone in Israel is ready to go hop over and join David's camp. We see Ishbosheth lost a valuable ally when he estranged Abner from his own camp, when he insulted him about some misconduct he had done, supposedly, with Saul's concubine. Abner says, I'm gone. I'm taking all of Israel with me. Verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord and the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Abner meets with David. Things seem to be going really well. In fact, we read that they make, you know, like this covenant together in person. And we read the last line of verse 21. David sent Abner away. He goes in peace. We're like, sweet. We are right around the corner from David being the king of a united Israel. He and Abner have just made this alliance. Things are going great. It's all peachy. But, verse 22. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, 
Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab said to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing? Joab is pretty upset here, huh? He, here he is confronting David, the king, and he says, you're just going to let Abner walk out of here? Do, do you not know that he has come to spy on you? To report the news of your numbers and your fortifications back to Ishbosheth? Abner is a fraud. He is playing you, David. But is Joab unbiased in this situation? Why not? Because he killed his brother. Joab has an ulterior motive for sowing this discord between David and Abner. Joab hasn't forgotten what Barb reminded us. This dude Abner that David's getting all chummy with killed his brother. So look what Joab does. Verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. See what Joab does here? Without David's knowledge, he sends messengers, hey, go get Abner, bring him back here. And he pretends to have a secret to tell him, draws him aside, you know, gets close to him. And I don't think it's a coincidence that what, Joab strikes him in the stomach, the same place that his brother had been killed. The text tells us why he did this, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. David, his response to this is to put some distance between he and Joab, verse 28. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. David responds very quickly, put some distance between he and the actions of Joab. As king, people may have thought that he was the one who had ordered this hit on Abner, and David just takes a step back and says, no, 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 no. This was all the makings of Joab, and may there be a curse pronounced on Joab here for his actions. David is not messing around. He takes these rash actions of Joab very seriously. And verse 30 confirms what we already knew. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. This isn't death in wartime. This isn't the normal, you know, just consequence of there being two parties fighting against each other. What Joab has done here is vengeance. This is murder. He kills someone in cold blood out of a spirit of revenge. 
And what follows in verses 31 to 39 is kind of the funeral. We read, Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They followed Abner at Hebron, excuse me, they buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen, and all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know about that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeriah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And I want us to pause and just consider something. Here we see David responding, tearing his clothes, lamenting, leading the people in mourning. Have we not just seen similar actions already? When, when did we see David do this? When Saul died. So twice now, in the span of three chapters, when someone who from our perspective is David's enemy, when they die, he responds really honorably, doesn't he? He weeps, he mourns, he laments, he leads the army in mourning the death of Abner. He, he, he called Saul mighty and the glory of Israel. In verse 38, David calls Abner a prince and a great man. And the point is that David treats even his opponents with great respect. Now, I realize Abner was in the process of becoming an ally of David, so he's not quite the opponent that maybe Saul would have been. But the point is that David does not celebrate death. He has a high regard for human life, even if that human life is someone who was once an enemy of his. He refuses to eat till after sunset. Commentators say this was another sign of respect. And the consequence of this is that the people take notice. They see their king. They see his actions, his behavior, and it pleases them. Here's a man that they want to follow, who has respect for human life, even his enemies. Can we name a better candidate to be king than David right now? He is light years ahead of Saul. David does not rejoice at wrongdoing. David is just. He respects people. He is doing a great job in his early years of kingship. And finally, in verse 39, David provides kind of this brief commentary on the past events. He says, I was gentle today. But these men, these sons of Zariah, they are severe. Unless we think that maybe David had a neutral you know, opinion of the events that had gone down, he calls Joab's behavior wicked. Even though he's his ally, even though Joab is his nephew, David calls wrongdoing when he sees it. And here's where it gets really interesting, because David doesn't forget the actions of Joab. In 1 Kings chapter 2, some 
30, maybe 40 years later, David is giving final instructions to his son Solomon, who is about to take over as the next king of Israel. And look what he says to Solomon. He says, you know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me? How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and he mentions another guy, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Decades later, David looks at Joab and says, I remember what Joab did to Abner Solomon. Do not let him go unpunished. Do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So in that same chapter, a little bit later, Joab, who had sided with Solomon's opponent, runs to the tent of the Lord, grabs hold of the horns of the altar, presumably as a place of refuge, like, you cannot kill me here. And there's a little bit of confusion between the guy that Solomon told to go kill Joab, and he's like, uh, am I allowed to kill someone in the tent of the Lord? And Solomon's like, do it. Here's the reasoning why. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel. And here's the other guy, Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. Joab's actions follow him to the grave. His vengeance here for the death of his brother is ultimately what leads to his death decades later. So what do we do with this story? Because I found myself asking the same question, right? Like, we don't question the inclusion of, like, Romans and Ephesians and Psalms in the Bible. Like, we're more than happy to read those books and be blessed by them and, like, whoo, I need to pick me up. I'm going to Romans. Probably not coming to this story, which re records, like, these, like, little skirmishes as David is trying to claim the throne that God had promised him. But can I remind you again of a verse I did just a couple weeks ago in Joel that all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, including this passage right here. These two chapters have value for us today. And I think one particularly profitable lesson from this passage comes from the actions of Joab. As we go through this study, we're going to see Joab he is a loose cannon. He, he does whatever he wants. Uh, we might say that he marches to the beat of his own drum. The fact that there is a king, David, who might have a different plan, never factors into Joab's decision-making. In this instance, David is making an alliance with Abner, and Joab's like, yeah, that doesn't really bother me. I'm going to kill Abner because I have my own agenda to advance. Maybe we'll comment on his actions as they come. But today, from this story, we know that Joab's behavior was motivated by what? Revenge. Does the Bible have anything to say about vengeance? 
Absolutely, it does. Yeah, Let, let's just pan quickly through some of these verses. First Peter, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. First Thessalonians 5, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good, to do to one another and to everyone. The Bible is not unclear about this. When you are mistreated, how do you respond? Do good in return. Maybe you're thinking, man, I have a coworker at work who belittles me. I have a family member who pretends I don't exist, doesn't take me very seriously. Maybe these offenses have just piled up in your heart. No, no one has killed your sibling, I hope not. And that is the cause for like you, like, you know, I hate you. But perhaps there's a lesser offense where you are letting this desire for revenge cloud your thinking. You are fantasizing about how in your next interaction with that person, you can belittle them. You can put them in their place. You can repay the same evil that they have done to you back right back at them. In your free time, you spend thinking about this person. How can I get revenge? And the teaching of scripture is clear. Don't. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Do not repay evil for evil. And yet there's a part of us that thinks, okay, but it seems like that person is just getting left off the hook. If I obey scriptures here, then this person who has committed some very real offenses against me is going to get to walk away scot-free. Actually, no. The Bible says in Romans 12, it starts off with the same, you know, don't repay evil for evil, but it actually elaborates on it a little bit further. And it says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And we see that this desire for revenge is not just an act of obedience on our part, not to take revenge, it is simultaneously an act of trust that what? God will. So let me ask you, do you trust the justice of God to calmly take a step back, let your emotions just kind of be washed away when people offend you and say, you know what? I know God's just. I know what the Bible says about taking vengeance. I'm going to calm down a little bit and leave it to God. You know, we have this uh, kind of double standard with vengeance where we want justice acted out immediately on other people, but on ourselves. Uh, oh, uh, please, I would like mercy and grace here, Lord, please. God works out his justice in his timing, but we know God just doesn't, you know, demonstrate justice. God is just, and every wrongdoing will one day be accounted for, ultimately, in the last days when everyone is judged for their actions. But even in this life, we have to trust that God is going to work these things out. I know we're out of time, so let's just end it right there. Trust the Lord when people offend you. I Maybe I'll just be frank here. I can get bent out of shape pretty easily and get consumed by these same thoughts of, I have to get back at someone. They've offended me. And God says, I got it. Trust me. I'm just. 
I'll work it out. That's a big ask for us, to be honest, and it requires some humility and patience in God's plan. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for your word, for using this story that, again, just seems kind of random from our perspective, to be honest, to teach us a larger truth about vengeance and responding in a way that is Christ-like. Help us to be spirit-filled, Lord, this week. People offend us all the time. We know that. Help us to trust you, to be patient, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.